Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. A new project has been released from the Beam Telemetry Group, and this is called Telemetry Registry. It's written in Erlang, so it will be accessible to all Beam languages. What's really interesting about this is it helps standardize the way you communicate what telemetry events your app is outputting and generating, or a particular library, and helps keep your docs about those telemetry events in sync. I I think telemetry is an awesome feature, and it's something that, uh, just from my experience, it seems like people are still kind of getting their head around, and, you know, because once you start emitting telemetry events, then you have to have something consuming them to really get the value from it. But this is a great step in that process of making sure we have standardized patterns for this. So it makes them more discoverable and easier for, uh, especially for library authors, uh, for people to know what kinds of telemetry events can I get information on from this library. So you can check out that in the show notes. I just wanted to point out a blog post, Homemade Analytics with Ecto and Elixir by Jose Valim. Um, in the article, he covers a minimal analytics system using Ecto, GenServer, and Elixir's registry, and it performs asynchronously in batches. It's a great article to look into if you just need a really simple start in analytics. So check that out in the show notes. There's a couple of other libraries that launched. Uh, one of them is CubDB. Uh, CubDB is an embedded key value database written in Elixir. Uh, it runs locally. It's schema list. It's backed by a single file. Um, it's uh, You can see it as an alternative to ETS or really DETS, uh, disk-backed ETS. Uh, or maybe Redis if you're using an external system. So CubDB uh, has that simple interface of just getting and putting and updating inside a key value store uh, in there. Uh, so check out CubDB if you're looking into a solution, uh, a simple solution like that. Uh, interestingly, uh, as CubDB just launched, um, there's a tool that launched <laughs> that uses CubDB, and that's this tool is called DeVito. <laughs> I love the name. It's a link shortener. <laughs> Uh, and it uses CubDB as the backend. Um, it has a JSON API and a, and a CLI, so it's very developer-friendly. Uh, it's a good a good solution to just self-host on your own if you're looking to, you know, share links with folks and then check to see if they clicked on it or, you know, social media kind of thing. Uh, Twitter does this for all their links, right? They shorten it into that t.co uh, link. So if you're looking for a, a similar solution, maybe for your company to share links and see how those those links are being clicked, this uh, DeVito tool seems like it'd be pretty cool. And on top of that, you get a CLI out of it, which is pretty nice. Another item is that the Gig City Elixir Conference was officially canceled. It is held in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's one of the smaller regional conferences. And given the current climate, they decided it was best to officially sit this one out. But they are looking forward to meeting next year in October 2021. Link in the show notes. And just a reminder that Elixir Conf 2020 tickets are on sale and it will be held virtually on September 3rd and 4th. That's it for the news. Do you know something that we don't know and would like it to be included in our new segment? Tweet us at Thinking Elixir and let us know. Today we are joined by Miguel Parias. Miguel, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. You've written on several blogs, you've contributed to the community, but people may not know about you. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a software developer from, from Portugal, from the north, uh, from a town called, called Braga. 
my company, Subvisual, uh, has been developing web and mobile products for about nine, ten years now and helping build dozens of companies since then. I've been a developer with them for most of that time, I think seven or eight years. Right now, I'm an Elixir developer, mostly focused on backend. I also do a little bit of Rust on the side and on side projects, but that's another topic. Um, before that, I came from Ruby, which I guess is where a lot of the Elixir community comes from as well. Before that, I came from a background of high-performance computing and computer science. I don't think I have a, a very big open source project to my name, so just some open source contributions here and there. Yeah, so due to the nature of uh, the work that we do at Subvisual, I had the opportunity to work with uh, different people, different technologies, and uh, different companies. So I'm always switching from one, one project to another, and that gave me, I think, a lot of opportunities to try out different things and learn from previous mistakes. My last project was uh, Utrust, which is one of these companies that we helped build uh, from the ground up. I was actually one of the first developers there. It's a payment platform uh, built entirely for cryptocurrencies. I was in charge of the, uh, all the integrations with blockchains and banking providers and part of the infrastructure as well. And it was all built in Elixir. And that's actually the project where I learned the most uh, about this technology. So you have been, as is evidence there, involved in a lot of different things for some time. And you're touching a lot of different technologies. You, as Kate has mentioned, you blog and talk about lots of different topics. So the topic in particular that we were interested in, in talking to you about is a, uh, a blog post you did recently where you talked about some of the best practices for background jobs. You know, just hearing you talk about some of these different projects, you know, you trust, uh, you know, integrating with banks. I've worked in also in fintech. Uh, where you do have a lot of and with Elixir as backends, and you have this idea of background tasks that need to happen, and you have all these considerations about reliability and recoverability, and so that's what I liked about your blog post, and just that it kind of goes from the simplest and we start building it up and just how do we think about this, and so I I'm just happy you're able to come on and talk with us about that and kind of share some of your insights that you've gained over this you know, long time of, of learning. Yeah. So that background jobs posts that actually came from a couple of th different things uh, over at Utrust. So yeah, we had background jobs for all kinds of stuff, sending emails, uh, processing payments, um, all that stuff. Uh, I was mainly focused on two parts. There were two main uh, tasks that I was working on all, during this two, two and a half years. So the first one was uh, synchronizing with the, the blockchains themselves. So, uh, and without getting into too much detail about how blockchains work, uh, they're a, um, an eventually consistent system. Uh, so once a transaction is submitted to the blockchain, it's not necessarily confirmed yet. So you can read from the blockchain and you can detect that it's there, but it still takes some time for you to be sure that, okay, the transaction is there, but, and, but now I'm, it's actually confirmed. It can never be reverted or hacked or something. Uh, and so that means that when we first detect a transaction, so we can have a system polling the blockchain periodically, finding out new, new stuff, uh, we can't be sure yet. We need to wait a little bit longer and then poll again and see if it's still there, if the system is consistent. Uh, and so that was the first system, uh, the kind of big part of the system that we helped build where we did this flow to integrate with the multiple blockchains that we supported. 
the flow is pretty much the same, but the APIs for different blockchains are different in many ways. And so this was a system that at the time we started with uh, GenStage, which made sense at the time because we're reading from a, a sort of an, an infinite source where blocks just keep on coming uh, and we want to have consumers for those for that information. Uh, it didn't turn out really, uh, really well. And that was, I guess, the first learning. And I think that like, I actually wrote a different blog post about that because GenStage isn't really that useful when you reach the end of the, the input and you need to wait for more. At that point, you need to poll yourself until something new comes along. And it just, you lose the benefits of the gen stage, all that back pressure stuff that's really useful. And it's just, a, it just ends up being a regular gen server where you're just constantly polling and waiting for new information. So we might refactor that like two or three times. We used uh, actually flow as well. It turned out to not be very useful as well for different reasons. Now it's just a, a couple of gen servers tied together and with custom messages and queues for keeping, keeping some, uh, some blocks in the background waiting for processing. All this to say that turned out to be a really complicated system and it works. It's actually one of the parts of the entire system that never really caused big problems. There were problems, of course, over two and a half years, a lot, a lot can go wrong. Uh, but it's one of those systems that it's there. It never really caused much cause for concern, uh, except for the part where uh, the rest of the team, and as we started offloading our tasks because we were about to leave the project, more people came into, into our team, into our squad, and they started looking at that code, and it was fairly complicated. It was developed by two or three people over two and a half years, three or four refactors over time. And it was communicating with blockchains, which is a concept that in itself is complicated to understand. Uh, so it got a little uh, complicated sometimes to explain to people how certain things are working, why some decisions uh, were made and so on. Uh, and so that led to the second part, uh, the second big task that I was in charge of. And this was during 2019, I guess, which was to implement some of the flows that were missing in our payment processing system. Uh, or I, I mean, not missing, but needed to be better automated. Uh, we, we first did a, like an MVP that worked, but we needed to make something more scalable. So for example, sending out refunds uh, was something that we needed to basically rewrite from, from scratch. Uh, or even some processes that we had to move funds internally. Uh, so now we're moving from, instead of reading the blockchain, we need to write to the blockchain to send transactions. And as I said before, when you write a transaction to a blockchain, it's not necessarily confirmed. You need to wait for it. And so let's say I'm sending, I need to process a refund to someone. Uh, I, our system receives a message. Hey, this user requested a refund for one Bitcoin to this address. Okay. And then we send out the transaction to the blockchain. But then we need to wait uh, in Bitcoin. It could be it's always at least one hour that we need to wait to make sure it's confirmed. But even if we wait an hour, we might need to wait more. Uh, there's not necessarily a way to check if it was dropped. We just need to wait enough time to be sure that it was dropped, basically. And once we're either sure that it was dropped or confirmed, we need to act on it, either confirm back to the dashboard just to update the status or just retry sending the transaction. And this in itself 
sounds also a bit complicated, but I wanted to try to model this entire system in a, in a way that was easier to reason with and easier for the rest of our developers to understand. And so that's where this whole idea and a lot of the things in that post about background jobs uh, came along. So did did you say that you started that first process that you were talking about? Did you say it started off as something more complicated, like using GenStage, and then you guys later refactored it a couple times and ended up using just job processing? Or did you just you refactored away from gen stage and just eventually ended up on gen servers. Yeah. We refactored away from gen stage because of, so like I was saying, the, the back pressure mechanism doesn't get really useful once you're at the end of the, the, the input and you're just waiting for the next bit of input because at, you just need to poll yourself until that comes. And unless the input is, co- is constantly flowing and is in some way larger than your processing power, uh, it's not really useful. And because of that, and because of a whole other, a whole set of other problems that we had related to how blockchains work and um, the amount of data that we were getting with these requests and even the load to the, to the blockchain nodes themselves, which we were running on our infrastructure, uh, that led to several refactors. And so the final sol- solution is a bunch of gen servers with a lot of abstractions uh, in every single layer. And so it all makes sense. Everything is there for a reason. But when you take a big system and you refactor it multiple times for two and a half years, eventually some things are going to at least get confusing. Yeah. yeah. So it sounded like you you tried to use the uh, the tools that were available. So starting with like uh, GenStage and then Flow, and then you went back down to low-level stuff, just writing your own gen servers at that point. Curious, did you ever try Broadway or was that too late? Because um, I know that's probably more recent. Well, broadly, I think it came up, or at least I found out about it when this part of the system was already stable. Yeah. And at that point, refactoring to use Broadway, I think we considered it at the, at the time, but it would just meant mean deleting everything we have so far. Uh, and so I don't think we considered it that much. I'm not even sure if it was if it would be useful because I haven't. I didn't really take a, a deep dive into it. I would just consider it briefly. Yeah, what I would like to say about Broadway is it is a, an abstraction on top of GenStage. And so it helps you manage some of those queue process, like uh, having the producers and multiple consumers and all the stages. And and particularly, it, it helps solve that problem of a graceful shutdown of a system. So I, I appreciate the insight that GenStage and just like that whole pattern does not fit all problems, right? That is a, like, it, it works really well when you have really bursty, large, you know, punch of events that come in and, a, we, okay, a whole bunch of stuff just landed. We got to process it all. So we're going to farm it all out. Uh, but that's not the problem you had, right? That's not the problem you were trying to solve. And so I think it's just, it's good to know uh, where these tools fit and what problems they're created to solve so that we can uh, not try to shoehorn the wrong tool in that's one of the things I really love about the beam and just Elixir is that we have the underlying primitives available to us, just processes and gen servers. And sometimes that's the best way to model a problem. Like right now I'm doing something at work that's uh, I'm using live view and live view is just a process. And so I can just do some things with that B 
because I know how to work with the process. I can just have it do some things with itself, uh, message itself on timers and, and just kind of, uh, you know, monitor sessions and proactively send messages down to the client and change the render. I just love that. I don't know. I, this is one of those things that I think is, I think it's, it's understood, but I don't know that it's fully appreciated. I just love it. Yeah, I agree with that uh, a lot. But I would also add uh, more or less the opposite side, uh, which is actually where that second part and where the blog posts kind of came from, uh, which is, yeah, we have all these tools in the BIM. So Elixir and Erlang by themselves can allow us to do a lot of things. We can just spawn a task and asynchronously, asynchronously do some stuff. But at the same time, because that either that code is too complicated like it was in my case, or either you're using um, very internal or sometimes unknown features uh, of Erlang. For example, I found out during last year that Erlang has a state, a state machine uh, implementation built in, which is kind of a thin wrapper around a gen server. Uh, and working on a team like I was, where I was one of the most experienced ones in Elixir, and not only me, but everyone else, or a lot of the, uh, the rest of the team came from a Ruby background, I found that it was often more useful to make the codes understandable to them with their Ruby, Ruby and Rails backgrounds than making sure I was using the, the shiniest Erlang features, let's say. So that's one of the things I, I think I talk about in the, in the blog post that we decided to use Quantum for processing background jobs because background jobs are something that you can easily do in Elixir. You can just spawn a background job uh, or a gen server and send a message to it every few milliseconds to do some work. And that's pretty much the same thing that Quantum does. But the main benefit there was that Quantum behaves a lot like Sidekick, which is the, the equivalent background queue for, for Ruby. And because a lot of us were from a Ruby background, looking at that code was just a lot more intuitive. Okay, I know how this works. I don't need to go learn this other thing. Uh, so it's just uh, a lot less uh, cognitive load, I'd say. And the rest of the team could just understand it easily without just coming in asking me what the hell was that strange keyword that, that, that I was writing. So, so Quantum looks pretty interesting in that, in that it shares an API with uh, or, or something similar to Sidekick. So coming from a Rails background, you might be familiar with that coming in. But it also supports uh, like cron job um, uh, notations, right, for like scheduling jobs every minute, every 15 minutes daily, that kind of stuff, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um it's it's kind of fascinating that the amount of job systems that exist in the Elixir ecosystem, I didn't even know about quantum before. And if you look at like the awesome Elixir list, like there's a bunch of them there. Um, I've been using XQ, which is uh, API compatible with, with sidekick. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Like thinking about your problem set that you have and, and how we need to background process jobs. It's, it's, I'd almost anticipate that like a lot of Elixir code bases out there, um, that migrate from from Ruby, they probably have a job system that they're working with, and the spectrum of job systems that are available in Elixir, like ranging from the totally Rails compatible API stuff, all all the way to the other side where it's uh, like, nope, we're not gonna we're not gonna be compatible with anything. It's gonna be totally Erlang o OTP, a hundred percent OTP. You better understand OTP <laughs> and, and and make that work. Um, 
and then that that shine that 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 interesting middle ground there too, uh, which I think most of these these job processing libraries probably you know have is you know like having a friendly API that's understandable for novice uh, Elixir developers and and useful enough for expert you know Elixir developers as well. So you said that you use Quantum. Um, have you used any other ones, or do you have any recommendations about which ones to choose and when? I think it depends a lot on the use case and, like I was saying before, on the team itself. So if you're working with a, a team that's very experienced in Erlang, it's probably more intuitive for your team to just go with the tools that Erlang has. Uh, in my case, it was useful to get some of that previous knowledge from, from Ruby because that's what our developers were familiar with. And so Quantum and XQ are kind of they kind of show uh, what you were just saying, that the Ruby community, a lot of the Elixir community comes from Ruby. And so when they came in, they started, okay, I missed that thing from Ruby. I need to implement a similar thing in Elixir. And that's how XQ and Sidekick and a lot of other packages uh, ended up existing. And that's, I don't think that's either good or, or bad. It's If it fits your your experience, it should be a good tool, yeah. Yeah, I will second that idea that it really does depend on the team and what you're trying to accomplish. Like I've used Quantum and I've used EXQ. And right now, like we have a system where it's, you know, it's a migration is in process of moving a Ruby app or Rails, you know, kind of monolith into an Elixir application that's more of an umbrella split out. And one of the things that we need to be able to do is have job compatibility with the Ruby side so that a Ruby side can put in a job and it goes into, you know, a Redis backed uh, queue that EXQ can read out of and we can actually process the job using Elixir and start moving over business logic that way, right? So for that kind of a problem, you're going to choose a queue that has that property of compatibility, right? That is the 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 big feature that we need at that point, you know, and once we're totally off of the Ruby and Rails application, you know, then we're then we're free to switch out and do whatever else we want. So I do totally agree that it's it it really does depend. Yeah. So are are you really going to do that though? If you've migrated your you know your Rails or whatever code base into into Elixir, you've gotten that compatibility layer there. Now you're totally in your new code base. You know, like I find that a really hard sell to you know, to say, okay, now, now we don't have to have this compatibility kind of compatibility layer. Now we can rewrite it essentially. So that, that, that becomes the big rewrite question, which I, I, I swear everyone's thought about, but you know, is, is realistically probably not going to happen. Well, I mean, you guys were, you know, were, were thinking about it, right? Like you've refactored several times and that was a big job system. What, what helped you make those kinds of decisions? Yeah, uh, I was going to say one thing that I, I agree with you that uh, rewrites are probably not uh, as likely as people sometimes think they are, or people sometimes try to optimize thinking that, okay, in two years, I'm going to need to move this to C++ because I'm going to need the most, the most performance possible, and that likely is not going to happen. Uh, but one use case that I found out was useful and so it's not about thinking about porting the jobs to a different language. It's about being able to do them outside of the system. So in the example I was giving before, sending out refunds, 
one of the things that I wanted the system to be able to do is, okay, so I'm going to have this background job processing refunds. But first of all, I want, to be, I want it to be disabled by default because once I release this to production, I don't want to send out 100 refunds by mistake if something is wrong there. I want to be <laughs> absolutely sure that this is working before enabling that. Yeah. And also, I'm, I probably want to do the first ones manually or something like that. And the way we did that was, was literally to just go into the production console. The job, the background worker was still disabled. And we had that uh, public function there that would allow us to, to say, okay, you grab just one refund and send it. And let's see how this works. Okay, now grab another. Okay, that, I'm satisfied. I'm going to enable the flag and open the gates. Yeah, so that actually brings us back into your, uh, your blog post, which I, I like. Because you, you gave four specific tips that I thought were really helpful. And that one sounds like it's the number four, plug in a manual mode. Uh, which I totally agree with. If you want to be able to identify, is this working correctly? One of the things that we'll do like, is turn on a feature flag kind of a thing, bring maybe one or two customers in and kind of test with that. So you're not like, hey, we had a new feature. Let's just blow it out to everybody and see what happens. You know, sometimes that's okay. It depends on the feature, right? Like if it's refunds, you're like, I, I want to be really careful about this. I want to think <laughs> about this. Uh, so like having a manual mode, right? It's like just pull one off, and try that. Then like, let's exhaustively look at it. Did everything work the way we think it should? Thank you for uh, sharing some of these insights. So what's another one of these little tips that you identified that you, in your blog post that you can share with us now? They kind of all derived from the same problem or the same two, two problems, which was to make the codes uh, understandable for or maintainable for the rest of the team, as well as be extra careful and safety first about this code because like I said, we didn't want to send out a hundred refunds by mistake and because of all the, the internal details. So we're sending out a transaction to the blockchain. Once you send it, there's no going back. If you, if you screwed up, it's your loss. Uh, so we need to be absolutely careful. There's no, no one we can call on the other side to say, Hey, we send out some money by mistake. Please send it back. <laughs> and so basically it was, Disabled by default, there was a feature flag that in production it would be disabled and we would first go to the console, send out a couple of them. And th that job then had its whole processing because you had to send a transaction. And the way that it worked on this particular job is that each job is described as a, an entry in a database table on the refunds table, basically. And it had a state. And that state was just telling the job processor what function to call, essentially. So if the state is created, that means I just created a refund request. So I'm going to call the function that sends the transaction. If it's pending, that means I sent the transaction. So the next time the job processing picks up that job, it's just going to pull the blockchain, check if it's confirmed or not, or if enough time has passed, and maybe update the state. If it's confirmed, then I'm, it's going to get get confirmed on our side and update the dashboard. And so the, the job itself, the gen server would just be constantly grabbing, I think, a hundred, let's say a hundred records from the database, the, the, the oldest ones, the ones with the, the least recent update to that. And it would call the whatever function was appropriate for that state. And so the, the jobs would slowly progress from one state to another with every subsequent call until they were completed. Uh, and so on one hand, this doesn't look very performant because 
for example, in Ethereum, transactions can end up being confirmed after just five minutes. But if our job, if, if that particular job only gets picked up, let's say 30 minutes later, that means even though the transaction was confirmed, we're still going to wait another 25 minutes before updating the dashboard. Then again, we're talking about a refund. It's not really a, a thing that needs to happen urgently, at least in most of the cases. Users expect that refunds are going to take a few hours at least. Uh, and that gave us the, the, the ability to literally isolate the code for each different state. So if the refund is created, it's going to go to this module, which sends out a blockchain transaction. If the transaction was already sent, then it's instead going to go to this other module, which just pulls the blockchain. And it's a completely different code. If all that code for the entire refund process was bunched together in the same module, it would look a lot more confusing. It would also be harder to test because uh, now being isolated, isolating each, each state in its own module and its own function, that means we're almost forced to write it in a way that we can test that single state in isolation from the rest. Uh, and anyone that, ca that came in just saw, okay, this module is called refund.check if confirmed or something like that. I, I can easily tell what this module is doing. This module, module is just part of a larger flow. So it's much easier to understand that than having the entire flow uh, described in, a, in, a, in two or three gen servers like we had for the, the previous case of synchronizing with blockchains. So I know we already talked about plugging in a manual mode, but I was just thinking that even if you're debugging something that's fully into production, that would be so helpful. Like you're getting all these support tickets, like something something goes wrong and you're able to just like plug that customer in and run them ad hoc to fix problems that just seems like such a good such a good thing to do for so many different reasons i was also curious in your blog post you say that all of these tips come from experience that you've had and something that's gone wrong and i'm kind of curious to hear about the put a put in a kill switch because i can only imagine <laughs> the experience you gained from turning something on <laughs> and just something blowing up and there was no way to stop it. <laughs> so I was curious if you could share where the experience came for that tip to put in a kill switch. Well, like any developer that works with production and takes care of the infrastructure, every one of those certainly has their own horror stories, right? In this, so in this case, uh, about all the, all this safety that I'm talking about, it, I, I actually didn't screw up uh, that much on that topic. Uh, but this was at a time where the um, blockchain was all the hype in the news, and there was a, a lot of uh, a lot of news going on, a lot of scams going on, uh, and one in particular was just always in my mind, which was uh, every, every couple of months uh, an Ethereum transaction would show up on Twitter or something where some someone sent out twenty cents but paid two thousand dollars on fees. Uh, and this is just in, in the Ethereum API, this is mostly a matter of swapping two, two fields by mistake. Uh, and that's the kind of problem that I said, no, I never want to, to do this, this kind of mistake. I'm not going to be that guy. So I'm going to do everything I can to, to never do this. And so th that was, uh, one of the things. Um, and also, yeah, like, like I said, I deleted production data 
just as much as anyone else working on production <laughs> systems. Uh, so I, I still have the scars from that. <laughs> so Miguel, can you give us a little bit of insight into what that was? Is, or do you have like a non-disclosure agreement or your, your legal team is t- counseled? Do you say, no, don't talk about that? <laughs> so this was a few years ago, actually uh, before Utrust. Uh, we were working on a product that was about to go live. Actually, the website was already live, uh, but it was the, the, the feature that would make it work was uh, disabled by a feature flag. So it was just a landing page where you could already sign up, but you couldn't do anything yet until that specific time. And like any other production release, I, I would imagine we were really busy in the situation room fixing bugs uh, at last minute. In the meantime, a few users were coming in and hitting F5 on the page, waiting for, for the, the time to come. It was a, a few, there were a few minutes left. And we were debugging things and fixing some non-critical bugs. We were already hopeful that it, it was going to go well. And I went and did some, some kind of a test. I don't even remember exactly what I was doing, but I know I did a query on IEX console to delete something because I thought I was in a local console testing out some, feature, some fix that I was working on. It turns out I was on the production console and I had just deleted the... Um, the country of res- residence or the nationality or something for all of our users, <laughs> nice. which at first, <laughs> so it was a small heart attack that I had at the time. Uh, but actually, it's it's actually the, the actually the only field in that database that I could delete safely, because that field we added uh, afterwards. It it was not something we added from the beginning, and so the way we forced users to fill in that field was when you signed in. If you didn't have a nationality, uh, a mod- model window would show up asking you for it. So the only consequence of what I did was that when users hit refresh again, they were shown that, that model again. They would go, hey, I already filled this. What's, what gives? And so, yeah, I, it was really fortunate. I deleted exactly the one thing that was somewhat safe to delete. Uh, but it still pushed me to, from that point forward, every time... Uh, every chance I get, uh, I customize the the console so that depending on what environment I'm in, it shows a different color. So if I yeah. go into a production console, the prompt will be in full red. If I go into staging, it's going to be yellow or something less frightening. Mm-hmm. And in development, it's just going to be the the plain one. So that I, I'm forced to know where I'm in. It's a good tip. That makes me curious. Is there a way to customize IEX consoles to like print a message when you remote in to say like hey this is a big banner that says i'm in production i've never even looked into this yeah so you so to customize iex it's just a dot iex dot exs file it's kind of a difficult thing to say um so that works uh, locally if you use iex mix uh with releases I think that I think you need to put it in a specific directory on the after the release is built. I'm not sure at the time, uh, but it, it was just a matter of adding that file to to our Docker file and putting it in the right place, and it worked. Yeah, and that cool. file is just a regular Elix script, so you can not only customize the prompt but add any functions or uh, anything that you might want. Yeah, I, I got to imagine printing a banner is pro- like it's good for when you're first going in there. But if you've been in there for a while and you've, you know, hit enter a few times, that banner's gone. <laughs> so I have to imagine uh, like I, I do a similar thing for other projects. Um, 
when I open up a production console, my whole terminal window turns red, right? Um, so, so you know it. <laughs> so there's nothing, you know, specific to the app. It's actually just my computer. So it's not reusable in that sense, unfortunately. But I wonder if there's a way at IEX to just send like a terminal code to color the background or something like that, or even better, more simply, just change the prompt. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit more persistent, I think. Yeah. And reusable. If you, dear listener, know one of these tips on how to do that, let us know. We'd love to hear. You can send at Thinking Elixir. One of the things I appreciate is just, uh, you know, when you have a lot of junior developers, you know, junior people can be very afraid of making a mistake. You know, it's like high visibility potentially. And you just like, you don't want to look incompetent. I think it's healthy for people to realize that, you know, even when you've been doing something for years, we still make mistakes. I just remember one mistake I made where I was at a company and we were doing, uh, you know, we're doing the, one of those things we get into the console. This is in a Rails application. And I was sending out email notifications. It was a very manual process, right? So we wrote a little script and I kind of tested the script and I was loading up the people and I was going to send out this special invite to for this special program that they were running. And I checked it. It's like, okay, it looks good. And then I'll rerun the script and it runs. But it was a Postgres database and the results come back because I didn't specify an order. They come back in different orders. So I said, you know, get the thing dot first. And so it grabs the first one, which was now different than the last time I ran the script. And so it sent it to the wrong people, right? So then we had to have, I had to tell people and then they, oh, let's, well, let's send out this, oh, whoops, to this one group of people and then send it out correctly. So it was embarrassing. Uh, but I never forgot that Postgres is unordered unless you specify an order. Like that is one of those things like I know. <laughs> and so like whenever I'm dealing with it, something's like, okay, I know I want to handle this. Like, yes, we make mistakes. We learn from them. And that's the whole point. For you, dear listener out there, we understand. We feel the pain. I would add, if you're not a junior, but a more senior developer and you make a mistake, just be open about it and let the junior guy next to you know that you also screw up. <laughs> yes. and that it's it's safe to do it more or less no one's gonna blame you for the rest of your life <laughs> hopefully <laughs> real quick i have to report my findings i looked there's an iex.configure and i changed my terminal when i'm using iex to always say production in all caps you can customize your prompt to say whatever you want so we'll drop a link to that the docs for iex.configure in the show notes Miguel, I appreciate you taking the time to spend this time and share some of this insight with us. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we have to let you go? Yeah, I would just mention that more or less as a coincidence, uh, just last week, uh, we announced something that we've, we've been planning for a couple of months now. And that, okay, now with the pandemic, uh, our plans got a bit confusing. So we're still working out the details, but we're organizing um, an Elixir conference here in Portugal for next year. 2021. There's still no specific date because we're still uh, going to see how things progress, but the idea is to be a, a physical conference. Uh, we organized RubyConf Portugal uh, a few years ago, three, three editions total, and it was a huge su success. So if you're one of those people that were from Ruby, migrated to Elixir, and came to our conferences, you already know what to expect, uh, the kind of parties and quality talks, I hope. Uh, but yeah, right now, I just have this announcement to make. No specific dates, no specific speakers. Uh, but we're surely going to be working out 
those details in the ne next few months. There is going to be a website uh, right now, not yet, just a Twitter account, which is alchemy underscore underscore conf. And this is an unfortunate problem because we grabbed the alchemy underscore conf Twitter handle a few months ago. And then the pandemic hits and we didn't publish anything. So the account got locked. <laughs> so we had to improvise with the second one for now. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, thank you, Miguel, for coming on and sharing that with us. We'll make sure to have a link to the conference Twitter where people can follow that. And uh, when you have an announcement to make, please let us know and we'll include that in the news section. So stay tuned and listen to the news. Please make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast player. I encourage you also, dear listener, to check out his article because we only touched on a few of the different points that he was making. And I really appreciated the attention and the examples that he was including in his blog post. So check out a link to that. We'll have a link in the show notes. And Miguel, well, thank you for coming on. Is there, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, what's the best way to do that? Uh, just my Twitter account, uh, which is nap 62 I'm sure there's, you're going to put a link somewhere in the description, I guess. And yeah, that's mostly where I, where I am nowadays. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.